Hello, this is Mary Christopher, and this is Storytime. This evening, we are going to finish King of the Wind, the story of the Godolphin Arabian, by Marguerite Henry, illustrated by Wesley Dennis. And, to the best of my knowledge, this story is based on fact. Okay, we are on chapter 20, and um, it has been another uh, upsetting day for Agba and Sham, and the uh, Grimalkin, the kitty. Yes, can't forget the kitty. Okay, chapter 20, Wicked Finn. After a moment of stunned silence, the Earl of Godolphin led his guests away. Twickerham ran to Hobgoblin, rolled him onto his belly, and helped him rise. When the horse was once more in his stall, the groom followed the Earl. He must have orders before he saw Agba. Agba, meanwhile, had gone back to work to avoid showing his joy. Not until darkness closed in did he realize what he had done. Then the gravity of it struck him. He had acted without orders. He had allowed Sham to fight Hobgoblin. Sham might have killed the Earl's favorite stallion, his star of hope. The boy swallowed hard. He had hurt the kindliest friend he had ever had. He was ready to take whatever punishment might come. So it was with no surprise that as he stood in Sham's stall, he saw coming toward him the quick, spidery legs of Titus Twickerham. They cast long, frightening shadows because of the langthorns which the groom held in each hand. Agba, he called out as soon as he was within hearing. What I has to say can be heard over the door. There was not the slightest hesitation or stammering in Mr. Twickerham's speech. It was as if he had wound up his words in a ball and now had only to unwind them. The Earl wants to be quit of ye, he pronounced. He don't want nobody ever again to mention ye or your horse in his presence. He can't trust himself to look at ye. Not ever, not ever, do you hear? Agba bent his head. He could understand. He thought of the wheat ear and unconsciously began tracing the swirling hairs on Sham's chest. Look me in the eye, you blockhead. Take your fingers off that weed. Listen sharp. All your nag is fit for is cat's meat. Yet his lordship says you're to saddle him immediate and follow the North Star till it brings you to up where in. Get a going with that saddle. Agba went for the saddle. His hands were shaking as he laid it on Sham's withers and slid it into place. Sham stretched his neck, 
in Mr. Twickerham's direction, opened wide his mouth, bared his teeth, and let forth a high and mighty neigh. Kill devil, the groom spat. Laugh all ye want to now. Ye and your hooded turtle of a boy and your cat too is going to wicked fen. And there in the dismal swamp land, you're going to end out your days. Agba felt a chill. The night mist was rising. It reminded him of the dank air of Newgate Jail. Shivering in your timbers, be Agba, taunted the groom, ye in your high-sounding book name. Now we'll see if it'll help ye follow directions. When ye come to Upware Inn, you'll see letters written on the gable of it. They spell out five miles from anywhere. No hurry. Titus Twickerham scratched his head. Huh, he exclaimed, maybe ye can't read any more than ye can talk. But no matter, ye can't miss the inn if you follow the North Star. Then ye turn right for five miles, and ye'll come upon... Here the groom poked his head close to Agba's and let the words whistle through his teeth. And ye'll come upon Wiccan Fan, and there in the miry bog you'll find a ghost-like hovel waiting just for ye. Agba's hands had suddenly grown icy. It was all he could do to buckle Shom's girth strap. But at last he stood ready, taking nothing in his saddlebag but Shom's right rub rag and a spool toy which the Duchess had given Grimalkin. His lordship is far too kind to you, muttered the groom as he opened the door of the stall. He says for me to fasten a lanthorn to each of your stirrups. Then you won't fall into the dikes and get drowned. Though to my mind, to be a good riddance of all of ye. I wouldn't have to be sending ye barley and oats every fortnight like I'm ordered to. He came so close now that his coarse hair scratched Agba's face. For me, his voice rasped. I'd sooner be buried alive than spend one night in the Fen country. Grimalkin began to yowl nervously. He leaped onto Mr. Twicker, Twickerham's head and from there onto Shom's saddle. From the height of Shom's back, he looked down on the groom as much as to say, A mounting block, that's all you are. The groom made a wry face at the cat. Humph, he scoffed. Ye and your mute friends be nothing but fen sluggers. Now Agba swung up on Shom, and together the three creatures went out into the night. Life was hard in the Fenland, even though Titus Twickerham carried out the Earl's orders. When the roads were passable, he sent barley and oats by a peasant farmer who delivered his load and drove off as fast as his horse could take him. 
After he had gone, Agba would light a peat fire and make barley gruel for all to share. Sometimes Agba speared for eels and pike in a crooked stream, but he was clumsy, and he had nothing but a sharp stick for a spear. Besides the coarse sedge grass, along the streams were razor sharp, and it cut Agba's arms and legs until he had to bind them with strips from his turban. So it was not often that he and Grimalkin enjoyed the delicacy of fresh fish. Titus Twickerham had told the truth about wicked Fen. Agba thought in the long nights when the wind moaned and the owls hooted. It was dismal ground. In winter, the white wilderness of snow walled the three creatures inside their hovel. Then Agba's mind flew back to all the promises he had made Sham, and his eyes would search Sham's to catch the faintest mistrust in their purple depths. The only answer he got was Sham's lips nibbling along his neck. We're in this together, he said in his own way. Fen, sloggers, all three of us. Then, with a nervous foreleg, he would paw the floor of the hut, as if he wanted to run out in the howling gales. Agba would lift the hoof and feel the soundness of it. The hard wall, the cushiony frog. See, he would tell himself, Sham is well and strong. The power of the wheat ear cannot last. And he laughed to feel the, feel the warm, good shagginess of Sham's coat and the length of his own hair. Winter spent itself and spring came, scattering wild flowers among the spare blades of grass. Sham rolled and rolled, trying to rub off his heavy winter coat, and when he stood up, he left great bunches of his hair lying on the grass. As soon as his back was turned, thrushes and finches and starlings picked up the hair and lined their nest with it. Another year passed, and in all that time, Agba saw but one human creature beside the peasant farmer. This one called himself a wild fowler because he trapped ducks and geese. He looked curiously out of his bird-like eyes at the three castaways. Then he shook his head and went his way, as if he liked his own company better. The wild creatures of Wicked Fen, however, accepted Sham and Agba and Grimalkin. Butterflies grazed Sham's nose. <clears throat> leaving the powder from their wings as a token of trust. And Agba made a friend of a hooded crow. One minute the crow was an earthy creature perched on his shoulder. The next he was an arrow piercing the sky. Wicked Finn was not always drear. There were fair days when just at sunset, Agba and Grimalkin would ride Sham along a grassy causeway to a watering place. It was more like flying than riding, for Sham no longer wore shoes, and the sound of his hooves 
was muted by the grass. They seemed one creature, these three, flying into the sunset. Then they drank with the wild things, the deer and the mallards and the gulls. One day, when Agba was repairing the thatched roof of his hobble, he looked off into the distance and noticed a cloud of dust rising. It was not just a puff. It was a long, extended cloud, as if made by many horses. He slid down the roof, glancing around quickly for Sham. There, only a few rods away, he was cavorting and kicking his heels like a colt. The boy ran to him and led him inside the hovel, closing the door securely. As he stepped out again, he almost stumbled over Grimalkin. Quickly, Agba sent the cat inside as well. Then he stood before the door, barricading it with his arms. He felt no fear for himself, but a nameless fear for Sham clutched at his heart. He squinted his eyes against the sun. Now he could make out a van drawn by a pair of horses and attended by a whole cavalcade of outriders. They were coming toward him. He could see the van clearly now. It was shiny red, the very same van in which Roxana had arrived at Gog Magog. And perched on the driver's box was Titus Twickerham. Mr. Twickerham waved his hat in the air. Then he drew up with a flourish. The horsemen leaped to their feet. Ho, oh, the, 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 there, lad, 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 the groom stammered excitedly as he strode toward Agba. We've cut, we've, we've come for you and the horse. Suddenly he realized that Agba was alone. His face went white. The horse, he asked, he, he has not the, the, Sham let out a shrill whinny just then. The color came back to Mr. Twickerham's face. The, the lad, he spoke in sugared tones. You remember the, the, the bear they called Ro Roxana? Agba nodded, his heart beating fast. Well, my boy, one morning, long about a year ago, I, I come to look at her, and, and, and bless my soul, if she ain't hiding a little horse colt by her side. Mr. Twickerham came a step closer, and he smiled, showing the gapping space in his teeth. That little. Colt was the spit or image of your horse. Agba looked at the other horsemen as if he could not believe the groom's words. He speaks the truth, laughed one. Don't he, lads? Aye, aye, that he does. Agba's heart warmed. If only he could see Shams' colt. Course the earl, he hated the sight of the colt, the groom went on, so he named him Lath 
because he was that skinny. And he says to me, Twickerham, just let that one grow. Don't ye bother to train him. The coach horses began pawing the grass. Mr. Twickerham ordered his assistants to take off their headstalls so they could graze. And now Agba smiled the groom's heart to this. Laith is raisin too. Yesterday, when the other two-year-olds was being timed around the ring, Laith was watching from the from the paddock. Then what do you calculate hap, hap, happened? Agba's eyes asked the question. Well, that Laith, he, he jumps, dumps the fence and starts racing around the ring on his own and he catches up with the horses ahead of him and he overtakes them and he travels like a, like a bu- bullet until he's ahead of them all. And some of the two-year-olds was mu- mu- months older than life and couldn't, no, none of them catch him. Agba could scarcely contain his excitement. He had but one question in his mind, and the groom answered it as if it had been spoken. Aye, boy, by some chance his lordship, he seized the whole per- per- performance, and his eyes pop, 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 so far out of his head I could have hooked him with my bootjack. Twickerham, he says, he says, trying to hide his feelings. Twickerham, he says, I was wrong. Maybe, maybe Agba's little Arabian horse is the one to sire a new and noble but, but breed of horse. Fetch him home, Twickerham, home. Titus Twickerham's face stretched in a grin. So here we are, here, 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 here we are, lad, waiting to take your stallion home into triumph. And for ye, there's a snowy white mantle and turban, what the Duchess sent along, and it, it come, come all the way from um, um, Morocco. Few minutes later, Shaum wearing a blanket for the first time in two years, was loaded into the shiny red van while Grimalkin sat perched on his back, a satisfied grin on his face. Agba stood in the back of the van, looking out between the well-padded stakes. He heard the crack of the whip. He felt the floor quiver beneath his feet. He saw the splendid outriders in their red jackets move into position. He stooped down and pressed his hand against Shaum's white spot. At last, Shaum was being honored according to his merits. At last, things were as they ought to be. On to Gog Magog. Chapter 21, God's Downs. The Earl of Godolphin himself was waiting to welcome Sham back to Gog Magog, and he led the way 
not to Sean's old stall, but to Hobgoblin's. Hobgoblin's name was no longer above the door. There were many letters there now. Agba studied them out. The Godolphin Arabian, they spelled. Why, the Earl had given Sean his own name, a royal name. Agba wanted to wring the Earl's hand, but a horse boy could not take such liberties. And just as his mind was casting wildly about for a way to thank him, the Earl himself put out his hand. Agba placed his palm with all its little calluses within the cushioned white one of the Earl. But it was the Earl's fingers that tightened in a clasp so firm it made the boy blink. They stood so for a long moment. Then the Earl cleared his throat. Godolphin means God's downs, he said, swallowing strangely. And here on God's downs your Arabian will live out his days. Come, Agba, persuade him to enter his new quarters. Sean looked little and comical in, Ag in Hobgoblin's big stall, but he accepted it as if it were his right. He rubbed his tail against the thickly padded walls and sidled among them as if he found the softness exactly to his taste. And wonder of wonders, he saw the Lady Roxana again. They came at each other with such joyous greetings that the sound of their reunion must have carried all the way to Wicked Finn. Roxana did not seem to notice that Shams' coat was shaggy and coarsened. And Shams seemed unaware that Roxana was no longer the delicate little filly he had known. She was a brood mare now, and her bones were well furnished. Not since the day they met have I heard a whinny so jubilant, the earl remarked to Agba. Life now settled down to a pleasant pace. Sham had his own private paddock, and from it he could view everything that went on about him. Twice in the year that followed, he saw his son, Laith, leave Gog Magog for the great races at Newmarket. He had no idea that Laith was the pride and toast of Newmarket, but each time he welcomed the young horse home with a deep-throated neigh. When Roxana presented Sham with Cade, a second son, Sham sniffed noses with him and nibbled along the little fellow's high crest. It seemed almost as if he were pleased and proud at having sired him. Grimalkin sniffed him too, then wrinkled his nose as if he much preferred his own stable mate. Besides, his bones were growing old, and he liked the comfort of the Godolphin Arabian's bed. Shams' third son was born a year after Cade. They named him Regulus, and he, like Laith and Cade, had the same high crest and the finely drawn legs of his sire. 
One day, when Regulus was two years old, the Earl of Godolphin summoned Agba to his house. It was the first time in all those years that Agba had ever been inside the stately brick mansion. He crossed the threshold in awe. A servant showed him to the library, where, in spite of the pleasant day, the Earl was seated before a crackling fire. Sit down, gentle friend, the Earl said, indicating a feather hassock opposite him. Agba was not accustomed to sitting anywhere but on the ground. Timidly, he circled the hassock like a dog, settling down for a nap. Then he bent forward and seated himself gingerly. When he realized that he was not going to topple off, he crossed his legs beneath him and waited for the Earl to speak. The Earl's face looked pinched and tired. He seemed preoccupied, as if he had forgotten Agda's presence. Absently, he reached for a pair of tongs, plucked a glowing coal from the fire, and lighted his pipe with a hand that was not steady. Agba turned his eyes away. He tried to observe the room so that he might take away a picture memory of it. But suddenly, wherever he looked, the symbols of the wheat ear and the white spot flashed before his eyes. He thought he saw them on the backs of the books that lined the walls, in the wisps of smoke the earl blew, in the dancing flames, the signs of success and of failure. He had almost forgotten them. Now they seemed everywhere at once. Agba longed to run out of the house to see if Sham was in trouble. But the quiet and the smoke were entwining themselves about his throat, choking him. And just when he seemed unable to take another breath, the Earl spoke. King Charles, he began, used to say of my father that he was never in the way, never out of the way. That, he said with a direct gaze, is my feeling for you. Agba's eyes were fixed on the Earl's face. It is right that you should know what I am about to say, Agba. For to your stallion may go the honor of improving the English racehorse. Already the swiftness and vitality of your golden Arabian is showing up in his colts. Had it not been for you, Agba, I might have discarded the purest blood of the Orient. Agba knew that in spite of these momentous words, something was wrong. He waited tensely. The news that I am a poor man, the Earl said at last, may come as a shock to you. I have not in this world but a title. Agba's mouth fell open. His glance darted to the polished floor, to the shining silver sconces, on the branching lights, to the gardener trimming the hedge outside the window. I, the earl nodded, 
Vast estates require vast reserves of money. I am in low circumstances and my debts grow clamorous. Pastures must needs be lined and rolled and harrowed. Horses shod, farriers paid. Agba, he paused, then went on fleetingly. On the very eve when we are improving the strain of the English horse, I may have to let our stables and pastures go for farming purposes. The words fell with a thud. The gold clock on the mantle told the hour. A log split open, sent up a shower of sparks, then fell among the ashes. For seconds, the earl stared into the fire. Then a flicker of hope lighted his eyes. There is a three-day race meeting at Newmarket this spring, he said with the queen's plate as the prize. Should Laith or Cade or Regulus win, there would be no need to let the property. The queen's plate is a purse of 1,000 guineas. The blood quickened in Agba's veins. He almost fell off the hassock in his excitement. He waited for the Earl's next words. They came in a rush. It is not often, he said, that a stallion has three great sons in one race meet. Since the Godolphin Arabian is too old to compete, I am of the opinion that he should be present at Newmarket to watch the performance of Laith and Cade and Regulus. What do you think of this? The Earl searched Agba's face, and when he read the hope and pride there, he threw back his head and laughed deeply. Chapter 22 The Queen's Plate Newmarket, the word set Agba on fire. Since first he had come to England and he had heard horseshoers, jockeys, water boys, exercise men, saddlers, cap makers, whip makers, the earl, and even the duchess say the word as if it held ice and flame in its syllables. Now that he knew all three of Shams' sons were to run on this famous course, Agba felt such excitement that he worked with the speed of a whirlwind. The days sped by in eager preparation for the great event. Finally came the day to start. To Agba, on that early morning of April, The road to Newmarket seemed never-ending. He was in a fever of expectancy. He wanted to break ranks, as Sean was urging him to do. He wanted to plunge ahead of Titus Twickerham on Galampus, the lead horse. But he managed to keep the pace. 
Behind him, he could hear the light hoofbeats of Shom's three sons and the heavy clippity-clop of the pack horses. Perhaps if he took his eyes from the striped body jacket of Titus Twickerham and the stout rump of Golompus, the pace would not seem so slow. He tried to study the farms they passed, the tidy cottages, with old men on the doorsteps and young men in the fields. He tried to count the long-necked geese and the four-storied carts they passed. He peered down the byways. He saw a shepherd and his dog driving a flock of sheep toward the market. He even tried to imagine what the sheep were thinking of the passing horses, but it was no use. New market, new market. The word kept dangling before him like a blade in the sun. New market, new market. He heard it in the rhythm of the hoofbeats, in the creak of cartwheels, in the song of the cuckoo, the cuckoo. New market. They climbed a gentle rise. They passed through a toll gate. And then suddenly New Market Heath lay spread out before them. Agba gasped in dismay. It was not that Newmarket was less beautiful than he had expected. It was not that at all. He looked at the vast greenness of it, smelled the fragrance of the turf, and instead of one race course, there were many. But what made a lump rise in Agba's throat was that everywhere, in all directions, exercise boys were galloping their horses. He shut his eyes, but he only saw them more clearly. The satin bodies of horses, horses flying, horses stretched out in the wind. His mind raced back to what the Earl had told him only last evening. You may walk your horse over the dips and rises, he had said kindly. But do not gallop him. He is far more valuable than a running horse, Agba. He is the hope of Gog Magog. And Mr. Twickerham had added his own word of caution. If I catches ye galloping him, I'll trounce ye within an inch of your life. At the time, Agba had readily agreed it would be enough happiness, he thought, to see Laith and Cade and Regulus run. But now he was not so sure how he wanted Sham to run to prove that he was the king of the wind. The Earl's horses were always allowed several days in Newmarket to limber up before the day of the meeting. For Agba and Sham, these days dragged. They were in Newmarket but not of it. The Earl seemed too busy to pay any attention to them. His whole concern was in Laith, Cade, and Regulus. He had not even told Agba where Sham was to be stationed when he watched his sons run. Agba wished he and Sham had never come to Newmarket. He listened to the talk going on about him, 
sifting out the words that mattered. Regulus will run one heat over the round course on Thursday. Cade will run, run one heat over the beacon course on Friday. On Saturday, Lath will run one heat over Caesar Witch course for the honor and the glory of the Queen's Plate. After that, thought Agba, it will be over and done with. He will be glad to go back to Gog Magog. Then he and Sean could lose themselves for hours at a time in the upland pasture. Monday, Tuesday passed. Wednesday came. All day, the Earl and Mr. Twickerham passed by Shom's tent as if they were unaware of his being there. Thursday came. Agba tried to busy himself shaking up the straw of Shom's bed, cleaning out his hooves, anointing his body with sheep's foot oil. By mid-morning he was doing the same tasks over and over, like a dog in a treadmill cage. His neck ached from looking up expectantly at every footfall. Perhaps the Earl would ask Sean to be the lead horse, to guide the nervous young fillies and colts to the starting post. There was still time. He might come. The sun climbed higher and higher. The excitement all about them mounted. But Agba and Sean were isolated. No one came near them. They seemed more alone now than when they were in the Fen country. Noon came. Regulus was led by Sean's stall on his way to the round course. Agba heard the saddling bell. He heard the winding of the trumpet. He heard the cry as if from a thousand throats, They're away! Then the quickening music of hoofbeats. A few brief seconds and they began fading, growing fainter and fainter until they were gone. Agba was glad, of course, when he heard the cries of Regulus, Regulus and knew that Sean's oldest son had won the two-year-old race. All the rest of the day, he told himself how very glad he was. But there was a kind of hollowness in his gladness. Sean was unnoticed, forgotten. When Cade won the three-year-old race on the second day, Agba went right on sewing a strap that Sham had torn from his horse cloth. This was not news. He had known it all along. Did not Cade, like Regulus, have Sham's blood flowing in his veins? Was he not sired by the king of the wind? Did he not have the white spot on his heel? With each question, Agba's needle whipped in and out of the blanket. Faster and faster. A shadow suddenly fell across his work. He looked up into the twinkling gray eyes of the Earl of Godolphin. 
Agba, cried the earl with a boyish grin. A great honor is come. The king and queen of England will attend the final race meet tomorrow. And the keeper of the course has invited the Godolphin Arabian to stand at the finish post. Think of it, Agba, the king and queen on one side and directly opposite, the Godolphin Arabian. Agba was on his feet in an instant, and you, gentle Agba, will be up. Then the earl chuckled. Though Twickerham insists upon two lead grooms to hold him, <laughs> he does not trust Sham when the horses are off. A group of the earl's friends were coming toward them. The earl lowered his voice and spoke quickly. The amulets, he whispered, do you still wear them about your neck? Agba took the silken bag from his neck and handed it to the earl. The earl winked. Hmm, he smiled. If the amulets can prevent and cure the bite of a scorpion, they can give lathe wings. He turned to go, then came back. I do not need to tell you to curry the Godolphin Arabian, he smiled with his eyes. Already his coat is the color of honey when he held when held in a jar against the sunlight. News of the king and queen's coming flew over the countryside, from Suffolk to Norfolk, from Hertford and Bedford, from nearly all the shires in England the people came, peers and lords and ladies in velvets and gold lace, yeomen in sturdy homespun, professors from Cambridge, gamekeepers with partridges in their pockets, moneylenders and Quakers, malt men and saddlers and whipmakers, and aldermen and squires and maids and housewives. They came on horseback, they came in coaches, they came afoot. They spread themselves along Devil's Dyke, where long years ago the Britons had dug a ditch to stem invasions. Now the dyke was overgrown with the finest turf in the kingdom. The people stood on it, sat on it, waiting for the sun to mark the middle of the day. Within Sham's tent, the very air seemed to crackle with excitement. The Earl of Godolphin himself was laying a purple saddlecloth on Sham's back and fastening gold ornaments on his bridle and breastplate. Two grooms stood ready with silken lead ropes. They were dressed in the Earl's stable colors, scarlet, silk body jackets and long scarlet stockings. What a contrast Agba made. His feet and legs were bare and he wore his plain mantle, but he sat his horse with such pride that he might have worn ermine. Now Sham was parading to the finish post. 
Agba kept his eyes forward. Yet he was aware of an undertone, as if bees buzzing. (coughs) The deep tones of men's voices, the grace notes of women. He caught wisps of talk. I prefer them lustier, stouter limbed. Little as a cricket, ain't he? He's got the gold of the sun. Egad, note the crest on him. Look at the artist there sketching a likeness of him. That young man astride him, I knew him when he was just a little mite. My poor boy, I used to bake sugar tarts for him. Agba turned his head very slightly, and from the sea of faces, he picked out the plump, red-cheeked face and the shining eyes of Mistress Cockburn. A look of affectionate greeting flew between them. Now there was a crash of drums and a flourish of trumpets as the light dragoons on matched horses swept into the race grounds. They were clearing a path for the royal party. The crowds fell back like thistles before the wind. Then shouts went up on all sides. Long live the king! Long live the queen! The coaches wheeled to a stop. Escorts rushed forward, followed by the mayor of Newmarket and all the aldermen and squires. They bowed low before His Royal Majesty, George II, King of Great Britain and Ireland. The King was little in stature, but he strutted to the stand, his purple body coat flaring out behind him like the tail of a peacock. Queen Carolyn, tall as a pikestaff, swept along behind him. Her gown was corded and hooped with pearls, and she wore ropes of pearls about her neck, and her bonnet was bedecked with purple plumes. Mincing along behind her came the princesses, Amelia and Carolyn and Mary and Louisa, miniatures of their splendid mother. They were followed by lords and ladies in great number. The cheering had scarcely died away when the entries for the race were led past the royal stand. Each of the horses was hooded and blanketed in the vivid colors of his own stable. Red, yellow, purple, gray, orange. Agba was dazzled by the sight It was as if some sky giant had opened a jewel bag and tossed rubies, amethysts, sapphires, and moonstones onto the grass. Quickly he spotted the scarlet sheet that enveloped Laith, though he could see only two pricked ears and the whisk of his tail. Over in the royal stand, the heads of the lords and ladies were bobbing this way and that, adjusting their field glasses. 
They seemed more interested in making out the crests on the blankets than in the quality of the legs and feet beneath them. Agba's eyes gathered in the whole spectacle. He was glad that he had come. He had wanted so terribly to see Sham run. But now he knew that it was better this way. How could Sham compete with the youngsters of the turf, especially when one of them was his own son? Sham was alerted, waiting for a signal from Agba, yet he stood still, obedient to Agba's wishes. It was better so. Defeat would have broken his heart. Now he was forever unbeaten. In his own mind and in Agba's, he was still the wind beneath the sun. Neither horse nor gazelle could outrun him. The saddle bell ended Agba's thoughts. His eyes flew to the starter who was unfurling his red flag, sending his assistant a dozen yards down the track. He watched the trumpeter blowing on his trumpet, his face rounder than a goat sack. Now the horses were parading to the starting post. They were drawing up in a line, nervous as grasshoppers, dancing, sidestepping, rearing, starting and being led back, starting again and again and again. The moment came. The starter dropped his red flag. They're away! Not for one second did Agba need to hunt for Laith in that flying stream of horse flesh. He did not even look for the scarlet and white stripes of the jockey's body coat. His eyes were fixed on the littlest horse, the littlest horse that got away to a bad start. The field was far out in front. The big horses were whipping down the steep slope to Devil's Dyke, skimming along the running gap, leaping up the opposite bank and across a long, flat stretch. They were beginning to bunch, making narrow gaps. Lathe was coming up from behind. He began filling in the gaps. He went through them. He was a blob of watercolor, trickling along the green turf between the other colors. For a brief second, the horses were hidden by a clump of hawthorn trees. Agba's knees tightened. He felt Sham quiver beneath him, saw white flecks of sweat come out on his neck. As well, the grooms were there to hold them both. The horses were coming around the trees now. The golden blob was still flowing between the other colors. It was flowing beyond them, flowing free. In full stride, Lathe was galloping down the dip and up the rise to the ending post. He was flying past it, leaving 
the lusty horses behind. The little horse wins, Laith, an easy winner. Laith, the son of Godolphin Arabian, wins. People of all ages and all ranks clapped their hands and cheered in wild notes of triumph. Agba never knew how he and Shom reached the royal stand. But suddenly they were there, and the Earl of Godolphin was there too. I am pleased to give you, Queen Caroline was saying in her sincere, straightforward manner, I am pleased to give and bestow upon the Earl of Godolphin the Queen's plate. Everyone could see it was not a plate that she held in her hands at all. It was a purse. But only Agba and the Earl knew how much that purse would mean to the future of the horse in England. The Earl looked right between the plumes in the Queen's bonnet and found Agba's eyes for an instant. Then he fell to his knees and kissed the queen's hand. A hush fell over the heath. The queen's words pinged sharp and clear, like the pearls that suddenly broke from her necklace and fell upon the floor of the stand. No one stooped to recover them, for the queen was speaking. And what, she asked, as she fixed one of her own purple plumes in Shams' headstall, what is the pedigree of this proud sire of three winning horses? Agba leaned forward in his saddle. There was a pause while the earl found the right words. Your Majesty, he spoke slowly, thoughtfully. His pedigree has been, has been lost. But perhaps it was so intended. His pedigree is written in his sons. How the country people cheered, an unknown stallion wearing the royal purple. It was a fairy tale come true. The princesses clapped their hands too. Even the king seemed pleased. He puffed out his chest and nodded to the queen that the answer was good. Agba swallowed. He felt a tear trickle down his cheek. Quickly, before anyone noticed, he raised his hand to brush it away. His hand stopped. Why, he was growing a beard. He was a man. Suddenly his mind flew back to Morocco. My name is Agba. Ba means father. I will be a father to you, Sham, and when I am grown, I will ride you before the multitudes 
and they will bow before you, and you will be king of the wind. I promise it. He has kept he had kept his word. For the first time in his life, he was glad he could not talk. Words would have spoiled everything. They were shells that cracked and blew away in the wind. He and Sham were alike. That was why they understood each other so deeply. The Godolphin Arabian stood very still, his regal head lifted. An east wind was rising. He stretched out his nostrils to gather in the scent. It was laden with the fragrance of wildflowers. Of what was he thinking? Was he rerunning the race of Laith? Was he rejoicing in the royal purple? Was he drawing a wood cart in the hot streets of Paris? Or just winging across the grassy downs in the shafts of the sun? Father of the Turf The Godolphin Arabian lived to a plentiful age, and when he died, at the age of 29, his body was buried at Gog Magog in a passage leading to his stable. Over his grave, a tablet of solid granite was laid. There was no inscription on it, none at all. For the Earl of Godolphin did not need words carved on a stone to remind him of the fire and spirit of the golden stallion from Morocco. He had only to look out upon his own meadows to see the living image of Sham in his colts and grand colts. There were light bays and dark bays and chestnuts, but regardless of color, they all wore the high crest of the Godolphin Arabian. These are my knights of the wonderful crest, the Earl of Godolphin <clears throat> would say when visitors came to Gog Magog. The blood of the Godolphin Arabian courses in their veins. You can trace it in the height of their crest, and you can trace it too in the underlying gold of their coats. At Newmarket, however, men were not concerned with color or crest. What they were interested in was speed and stamina. And it was exactly these qualities in the descendants of the Godolphin Arabian. The names of Godolphin's offspring were on every tongue. Laith, Cade, Regulus, Blank, Buffcoat, Matcham, Molly Longlegs, Whistlejacket, Weasel, Old England, Silverlocks, Dormouse, Eclipse, Shams' great-grandson, was the pride of the kingdom. In his whole career, he never ran except to win. He won 11 plates at Newmarket. Eclipse first, the rest nowhere, roared the crowds at Newmarket 
when Eclipse came sailing past the winning post. It is a curious fact that today, two centuries later, the name of the Godolphin Arabian is found in the pedigree of almost every superior thoroughbred. His blood reigns. To him goes the title, Father of the Turf. Would not the carter of Paris and the king's cook and the mistress of the Red Lion have laughed in scorn at the idea of Shams attaining such fame? How they would have held their sides had anyone predicted that man of war, the greatest racer of his time, would owe his vitality to the fiery little horse from Morocco. The Earl of Godolphin, however, would not have been surprised in the least. Perhaps he felt that some such honor would come to his horse. For when the Earl grew to be an old, old man, he liked to take his visitors to Sean's grave. And when they asked why the tablet bore no marking, he would say, I shall trouble you with a very short answer. It needs none. You see, he would smile, a faraway look in his eye. The golden bay was tended all his life by a boy who could not speak. He left for Morocco the night that his horse died. Without any words at all, he made me understand that his mission in life was fulfilled. So I have kept the tablet clean. It is for you and for me to write here our thoughts and tributes to the king of the wind and the slim brown horse boy who loved him. Well, goodness. It's quite a story. I hope you enjoyed King of the Wind. <clears throat> I enjoyed reading it. And I certainly enjoyed having it read to me when I was growing up. One of my favorite books. So next week we will start another book. I'm not sure what yet, but I'll try to find something entertaining and delightful. Have a wonderful week. Take good care. Thank you for listening. And I will talk to you later in the week.